0: New Omicron variants are being discovered around the world. 1.3 million Americans rationed insulin at some point last year. And a new FDA rule allowing hearing aids to be sold over the counter goes into effect. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al Sayed. You all know my style by now. I try to keep it classy, stick to the evidence, and stay above the drama. But not today. Today, I'm about to get real petty. Because if there's one person that pisses me off in my core, like in the thickest part of my left ventricle of my heart, it's Mehmet Oz. On paper, I should like the dude. He's a Muslim doctor running for public office after all. He even claims to be both from the Middle East and the Midwest. But honestly, all of those things are why I loathe what he represents. Let me start with the first time Oz went to the Senate. That's right, he's been there before, back in 2014. That's because he got his rear end hauled up to testify about the bunk medications he was pushing on his show.
1: Quote, I've got the number one miracle in a bottle to burn your fat. It's raspberry ketone. Quote, Garcinia cambogia. It may be the simple solution you've been looking for to bust your body fat for good. I don't get why you need to say this stuff because you know it's not true. So why when you have this amazing megaphone and this amazing ability to communicate why would you cheapen your show by saying things like that
0: well if i could disagree about whether they work or not and i'll move on to the issue of the words that i used that's then missouri senator claire mccaskill grilling mehmed on his daytime tv quackery for 13 years mehmed oz used his quote dr oz show to pedal in bunk science to pump quack meds that same year A research article published in the British Medical Journal, one of medicine's most prestigious journals, found that up to 40% of the medications that Oz pushed on his show had no evidence behind them. In fact, there was evidence that straight up contradicted Oz's recommendations in 15% of the cases. All the while, he was, quote, faculty at my alma mater, Columbia University. That's when, in 2015, faculty circulated an open letter to have him removed for the bunk science he was pushing. It turns out that wasn't all he was doing while he was faculty at Columbia
2: accusations that Republican Senate candidate Mehmet Oz abused animals, including puppies, during medical research.
0: His research team was performing experiments on animals. And look, whatever you say about animal research, that's not the issue here. It's the fact that a Columbia veterinarian became a whistleblower when she reported his lab for multiple violations of the Animal Welfare Act for the mistreatment of dogs. In one gruesome incident, his lab killed puppies with lethal injections to the heart with expired medications without any sedation and they threw them into the same plastic bag as their living siblings. Columbia was forced to pay a $2,000 fine for his lab's malfeasance. But that's not all. Remember this? Uh, We have now a randomized trial. That's what was lacking, a randomized trial done by the Chinese that supports the potential benefit of this hydroxychloroquine compound for patients with COVID-19. That's right. Mehmet Oz again this time pushing hydroxychloroquine based on tiny trials that were not peer-reviewed. Bunk science is nothing new for Dr. Oz, but this was something more. When he was promoting hydroxychloroquine, he held stock in two companies that manufactured and distributed it. He held about $615,000 in stock at Thermo Fisher Scientific, a company that manufactures hydroxychloroquine. Can't even make this stuff up. Not only was hydroxychloroquine shown to be ineffective, but actually worsened outcomes in some patients in larger clinical trials. Science, as you've heard me say over and over and over again, is not a body of knowledge. It's a process. And respecting that process is what makes someone a scientist. But Mehmet has leveraged his certification as a physician, a label of science, to flout science at every single turn. Whether it was abusing animals under his care as a scientist at Columbia, whether it was pushing quack meds for 13 years as a TV doctor, or it was pushing COVID treatments that hadn't been properly vetted to pad his own stocks in a pandemic this guy is the worst. Now he's running for Senate in Pennsylvania. This despite the fact that he's been a longtime resident of New Jersey. But we all knew that that wouldn't stop a shameless huckster from doing something that'll feed his ego. And what's worse is that on the heels of the worst pandemic in a century, one that killed millions worldwide, more than a million here at home, we face a crossroads. Do we build a public health system up to the task of stopping the next one? or do we cede the future of public health to a quack doctor who peddled raspberry ketones and hydroxychloroquine? Because if the GOP retakes the Senate, you better believe that they'll give Mehmet Oz the bully pulpit on everything related to health. Rather than robust funding for local health departments or Medicare for All, we'll have green coffee extract and Garcinia Cambogia. Oz isn't just himself unfit for public office. He could usher in public health and healthcare systems that are unfit for our future. Which is why I wanted to spend today's episode digging into Dr. Oz's malfeasance, both as a TV personality and a politician. What does his past say about why he's running for office in the first place? And what does the way he's running say about the worst of what he could do if he were elected? First, I spoke with Trip Gabriel, a national political reporter at the New York Times, about what Mehmed Oz's past may tell us about what he might do if he was handed a seat in the Senate. Then I sat down with health advocate, second lady of Pennsylvania, and wife of Senate candidate John Fetterman, Giselle Fetterman. To talk about what it's like to have a TV doctor poke fun at your husband for suffering a stroke, first my conversation with Trip Gabriel. All right, let's jump right in. Uh, Trip, can you introduce yourself for the tape?
1: Sure, I'm Trip Gabriel at the New York Times. I'm a uh, national political reporter. I cover um, all kinds of campaigns, presidential campaigns, and in midterm years like this one, Senate campaigns and uh, and governors' campaigns.
0: I want to sort of go back into the Dr. Oz files here. Where does Dr. Oz get started on the public stage? How does he start to build that um, that celebrity persona that um, that he's taking advantage of now?
1: Well, he's, he's best known, you know, because of the Dr. Oz show, which ran for 11, 12, 13 years. And, you know, he kind of segued into that thanks to Oprah Winfrey. He was a regular guest on Oprah's show for a number of years before uh, her company actually set him up with his own show. But he has been a... Seeker of the limelight and publicity, you know, for almost his entire career, even before he you know got on to Oprah as a regular. I mean, he 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 is um, an extraordinary uh, heart surgeon, and you know everyone that knew him back in his uh, formative years uh, at Columbia, both as a med student and then um, as a professor of surgery there and um, and an active surgeon and a, and a research surgeon, you know, knew he had a great talent. But he also had a talent for um, publicizing himself, which most doctors don't. Most doctors uh, work in obscurity, whether they choose to or not. But uh, you know, from the earliest days of his, uh, you know, being a doc, he he uh, had he had a. If you go back and look through the, I mean, the New Yorker, the New York Times Magazine were all writing profiles of this remarkable doctor um, operating at Columbia, and you know. He did uh, heart surgeries on on a lot of prominent people um, in New York, so he got a lot of attention, and 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 it actually created some rifts with uh, some of his, uh, his his medical colleagues in those days. But uh, mm. his eye was, you know, clearly on you know something beyond medicine, beyond you know the practice of medicine, and and you know he fit just perfectly once uh, once Oprah came calling into uh, into that uh, that career path
0: mm and while he was at columbia he uh he led a research team, which a whistleblower identified was uh not following standard protocol with some of the animal specimens on which they were doing research can Can you talk to us a little bit about you know that part of his career what was he up to, and what was the circumstance there
1: well he was a you know he was a cardiothoracic surgeon so he did he did heart surgeries and he was also a researcher and you know the research that he you know participated in uh you know did experiments on animals which is i'm not a doctor but i understand that's pretty uh, pretty common in a lot of uh, specialties i mean a lot of surgeries are developed you know in uh, in animal experiments within columbia you know within the university there there is uh, you know a veterinary um research uh, a laboratory uh, there were but many studies involved animals uh by one account dr Oz had his name on um dozens of studies uh, research papers excuse me that you know in which you know hundreds of animals uh ended up dying um that's not they were euthanized uh, that's 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 the way it works in animal studies um and there were some charges this is back in the uh, early 2000s that uh there was um episodes of cruelty and neglect in the uh treatment of the animals in some of these studies. Now, um, it was investigated. uh, There was a whistleblower who came forward who was a a veterinarian, I guess, in that lab. And there was an investigation by um, Columbia that uh, found some improprieties. And Columbia ended up settling with the um, uh, USDA uh, under the Animal Welfare Act and paid a $2,000 fine but they admitted no culpability, and it wasn't just research done you know in a lab um, uh, under the uh, auspices of of oz there were there were other uh, doctors as well uh, It's unclear um, from what I've read and you know a number of journalists have have tried to investigate this uh, both both today and um, even back when it was taking place uh, twenty years ago you know how much culpability uh you know, ends up uh, on how much culpability Oz has. Uh, He claims or his campaign claims that he was never involved in those experiments directly. Um, His name was on research papers as a principal investigator in some cases, uh, but um, he says or his campaign says that he never actually, you know, worked directly with the animals or was involved in their post-operative care. So um, his name is not on the uh, the. Fine that uh, that Columbia uh, paid the paid the federal government under the Animal Welfare Act. Um, so it's a little unclear, and it, and and you know how much responsibility one wants to lay at uh, at Oz's feet, uh, you know, for for this kind of research. Obviously, um, research on animals in to develop medical um, procedures, in this case, surgical procedures, not really testing drugs or something, you know, is is not uncommon, and you know, people. Need to decide for themselves, I guess, whether they they feel there's a that's an ethical practice or something that should be uh, should be curtailed.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think even independent of the norm of biomedical research on animals, I think the the big issue um, to my mind is the fact that there was not proper care taken. To care for these uh, animals that were um, were being used in biomedical research, and you know, at best, that says that uh, he was just a negligent uh, principal investigator, and at worst, the question is why? Why is this lab cutting corners when it comes to caring for? Uh, the animals that are being sacrificed in 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 by way of this research and you know beyond the scope of 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 our conversation here to to really decide whether or not biomedical research should go forward on animals um, and there's good arguments on on both sides of that but it is to say that if you're going to do it um respecting the lives of these animals um, at least to the level of the law um, if not more so uh, seems like the obvious thing to do I, I want to uh, you know, move on to his time in 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 showbiz. Um, he gets the show, and he uh, he then sort of makes a shtick for himself, uh, where he's got this sort of you know doctor in tight fitting scrubs persona, um, telling people about the simple, easy wonder drugs that they can take um, to improve their uh, their cognitive function or 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 lose that weight. Um, and he he gets into a bit of trouble um, with some of the claims that he makes. Was the Doctor Oz show, you know, that dubious in terms of scientific claims for the jump, or did he slowly but surely sort of move in this direction um, because it was pecuniary?
1: Well, I think it, I, I have <laughs> was on the air for I think twelve years, I, and I am certainly not anyone who's watched the majority of the show or any, <laughs> or any significant number of episodes. And I was never a, a daytime television viewer, so but uh, yeah, pretty. Pretty much all along, you know, he was making claims for nutrition supplements, dietary supplements that, you know, were miracle cures for, you know, for obesity and would help you lose weight and, you know, and then he went farther in certain cases. But, uh, yeah, there's some dubious stuff, you know, from the very beginning. I mean, he had... Robert Kennedy Jr. on, you know, and gave him a platform for his vaccine uh, mm. um, uh, denial, you know, back uh, quite quite a long time ago. In 2014, I think the date was, uh, some researchers uh, looked into, t- I think, 80 different recommendations that had been made on the Dr. Oz show, you know, or, so that would have been, you know, 10 years ago, and and, and found that uh, fewer than half of them actually were supported by any any clinical evidence. There have been a lot of, you know, bloggers that have uh you know sought to uh you know hold hold his claims up to you know uh, some kind of standard of 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 science and 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 have and have found them uh greatly lacking and then i think you mentioned there was a senate investigation or at least a senate hearing in the, that same year 2014 in which he was called onto the carpet and you know and and, and the audio that, that that the senators you know played back, or that you know you can find on the in- internet, you know from from the show. I mean, he, he it's no different from a late night, um, you know, infomercial hawking you know miracle weight loss cures. I mean, mm-hmm. and and he did not present it as you know we're going to tell you, you know, or he kind of there was a gloss on you know I'm going to we're, we're going to see whether this is really the miracle cure, but that, that it pretends to be. But he you know he he echoed that that oh, that that very salesman like you know hucksterish language that you know this is a, this is a miracle cure for you know busting your belly fat and you know and, and so on and so forth um and a lot of that stuff you know was was based on very thin evidence some of it um based on studies that were later withdrawn i mean he drew some uh you know he he drew uh reprimands from you know the fda he you know for for claims he made um for example, that the uh, apple juice contained arsenic, which the f d a said was 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 irresponsible um, one show I do <laughs> remember watching when I was doing some reporting on his background you know he he claimed that uh, women who put their tucked their cell phones into their bras, which I guess is a thing um or was a thing you know shouldn't do that because because the cell phones could cause cancer mm. uh, and th- there's absolutely no you know basis in that and 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 that show didn't you know as i recall didn't really present you know you know the the research in you know about about it but it just it kind of you know picked up in the early days on you know certain kind of panic that uh, that that phones might be emitting some sort of cancer causing uh, frequencies i guess <laughs>
0: You know the thing about it is, <laughs> I I um I don't begrudge uh doctors for going out and having a conversation with the public. That's what this show is. I don't begrudge doctors uh, to run for office. I did that. Um, th- the thing that really gets me is using an MD to put a professional or scientific veneer on good old fashioned quackery, and it it's like he did this for. A decade plus on television, and nobody stopped him. I mean, the 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 question I guess I have is that despite all of this, his show still commanded enough ratings to stay on the air for quite a while. He got a Hollywood star uh for for his uh his work. And there are still a lot of people who know and trust him. Um and it's it's not hard, right, to take your degree and sell sensationalism about the, the very topic that um, you are certified to be an expert on uh, so that you can sell attention, fame, and products. Um, why do you think that he was allowed to keep going like this despite all the censure from the FDA, from from senators? Um, what, what about him uh, allowed him to just kind of keep doing his thing despite the the clear evidence of either at, at best that it was just wasting people's money and at worst potentially harming them.
1: Abdul, I know you're a uh, a very well-educated and serious uh, person, um, but I th- th- the question just seems <laughs> a little naive. Uh, it sells. You know, the, the television uh, studios were were making money hand over fist. Uh, Mehmed is a very rich man, he's worth over $100 million. He has homes, you know, all around the country, in many places around the country. He got quite wealthy. Um, not, I should say, you know, taking a cut of the products that he was hawking, but, you know, just the the— he, you know, as as a producer of his own show that you know sold advertising, it was a very lucrative thing. But it was very lucrative for the, you know, it's daytime television, it's talk television. It's very lucrative for the uh, the cable channels that uh, that produce and distribute it, and 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 you know, it draws in a lot of advertising, and it draws in the advertising because there is a, a ve- there was a very large audience for this, uh, mostly female daytime TV, as we've we've we've, we've discussed. You know, there's. <laughs> There's no, uh, and this this came up, I guess, in the Senate uh, hearing that he participated in. There's, you know, there's there's no law about what you can, you know, claim, you know, medically. I mean, it, it, he's not selling a, a product specifically, so the USDA's or the FDA's regulatory, you know, kind of armature is not uh, is is not called in. Um, you know, I think he told the senators that uh, in in Washington that you know he he sees himself as a as an advocate and uh, for people to get to to take responsibility for their health. And he res, he resented you know anyone trying to you know um, hem in the kind of flowery language that he may may cho- may choose to to use. I mean, if you if you walk into any supermarket and go through the uh, the, the supplements aisle, you know there's. Thousands of products calling, calling out to you, that and, and promising that they're going to make a difference in your life. Um, that was his racket, or that was his—I won't even use that derogatory term. Right? That was that was his, uh, you know, that was his niche. And and there's a big audience for it. And occasionally his wings were clipped by you know by by regulators. Um, and occasionally he you know withdrew some stuff. Um, I mean, in my mind, it got more serious when he, you know, when COVID came came along, and and Oz kind of. Leapt from just being Dr. Oz in daytime television, talking about belly busting, you know, miracle diet pills, and you know, became an early champion on Fox News, mostly in the on the very influential evening broadcasts for um, hydroxychloroquine, if you remember, mm-hmm. which was a, you know, supposedly a a miracle cure for COVID nineteen in early 2020 when when people. Were, were were very afraid of of, of, of the virus and, and and didn't know very much about it and what to do about it. But you know, he brought that same um credulity or or just the um, instinct to seize on fairly thin evidence, maybe one clinical t- trial, and and promote and tout something as as, as a miracle cure. And um, you know that that was a, a more serious uh, issue that eventually became you know a, a big part of the Trump administration's. Uh, you know, efforts to kind of you know, minimize the uh, the seriousness of the of the virus.
0: Yeah, I, I was going to ask, and I, I wanted to jump there. And the reason I asked the question, as naive as it sounded, is because you know, in the end, um, we trust the will of our democracy to make good decisions. The the hard part is we've already watched how it's been gamed by hucksters who sell their celebrity. Um, and uh, frankly, their their brazen willingness to say things that they know are not true to gain power. And you know, you started to see a much more um, serious side of the adverse consequences beyond, as you say, busting belly fat um, in the context of a pandemic where you watch as uh, this TV doctor starts to use his platform, to sell a drug with very little evidence backing it um, from scientists whose uh, whose methods were dubious at best, um, that he and his wife own stock in. I mean, this is the craziest part, right? $615,000 of stock in um, one of the uh, hydroxychloroquine uh, manufacturing and and distribution companies. Um, And he's out there spouting this stuff uh, in the middle of a pandemic. I what does that tell you about his his ethics his uh, morals the the things that he values and what it might mean if he was actually given the platform of a US senator
1: I don't even know I don't know enough of you know it's someone like as a journalist you you know you, you got to kind of caution yourself from trying to Guess what's in somebody's mind and and what their motives are. I mean, I don't know if this was, that was a mercenary uh, motive as, as as you suggested in promoting hydroxychloroquine. I I just I think that you know the limelight was calling. This was his mo as a doctor. There there was a very thin, superficial study you know uh, out of France that that, that that you know that he seized upon. He called it massive, massive news. He was on. Fox News more than twenty five times in early to twenty twenty, you know, telling people that this was going to be a miracle cure. You know, at the same time that people like uh, Anthony Fauci were saying, "Wait a minute, hold on, we need studies to do this." I mean, ultimately, as as everyone remembers, hydroxychloroquine was um, shown to be uh, completely ineffective as a as a as a drug to to prevent. In fact, um, harmful, harmful um, for and, and ha- patients. Exactly, and harmful. Um, what does it show about what kind of a senator he would be? Um, well, that's a good. That's a good question. Um, uh, personally, I think the bar for being a United States senator is so low today. Um, you know, both the existing senators are in office, and some of the ones who are running with a with a very good chance of joining their 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 ranks. I mean, you've got former football coaches. You know, you can get many people who are there only because they're extremely wealthy and use their money to uh, to get there. And you know, does. I would honestly say I think he's he's in the middle of the pack. I don't I don't I don't see him as a grievous threat to uh to 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 US health. I think he's I, I guess I tend to think it, it's it is it is more um caveat emptor, you know, with with where you get your medical advice from. If you if you're the kind of person that gets medical advice from a daytime TV show, you know, this is uh, you know, maybe maybe you'll you'll see a, an extension of that uh, performance in uh once he's in the Senate. One of the things that stands out for me when I was reporting about Oz's show was I talked to two uh, people who were on his research team. These were uh, medical students who were taking a break from medical school and doing a year, you know, in, in a research department on the Oz Show. And they they kind of told me, you know, how the how the sausage was made. And you mm. know, producers would sit around and they'd see something on the internet, you know, like, hey, green coffee bean extract, you know, will help you lose weight, and they would say, okay, we're going to do a segment on that. And they would turn it over to the actual, you know, experts in the research department and say, find us the evidence for this. Often there was no evidence for it. Hmm. Um, the uh, the researchers would push back, and the producers would overrule them. They, the prospect of a, you know, uh, what looks good on TV, you know, was much more important than any any scientific uh, evidence for something. And, um, you know, so maybe that's, the, that's a clue to the kind of, you know, Senator Oz, the kind of clue uh, to the kind of political... You know, profile that, that that Oz would have as a center. I mean, if it's uh, you know, if it ha- if it has you know public appeal, if it's uh, you know that 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 might trump you know the uh, the actual um, evidence for something's uh, effectiveness as policy. But that's hardly a shocking perspective for a member of
0: Congress these days. That that is true. Um, you know, it, it is unfortunately the bar is extremely low for. Uh, our legislatures, um, particularly now. And yet, you know, the, the hard part about Mehmet Oz, the thing that makes him, to me, so dangerous is that he brands so clearly as an expert, right? This is a former Columbia heart surgeon uh, with all that you would expect from that um, who now would be in a position not just to spout whatever... You know, you find on the bottom end of an article you read on the Internet, but but also with the ability to actually shape a uh, a future for American healthcare, And that to me is the is the biggest worry I have. It's that you you think about what might happen if Mehmet Oz is elected and Republicans take the Senate um, and who is in charge now of or speaking for health policy on behalf of Republicans. Mehmet Oz is the next one up. And you think about the way he made his hundred plus million dollars and what he learned about um, the contrast between being rigorous and evidence-driven in the first part of his career versus how much you could make being a huckster in the latter part of his career. And I wonder what kind of healthcare system he tries to build for us um, and what that means uh, for our country. Uh, Has he spoken much on, on healthcare policy and uh, if so, what, what, what would be his vision for American healthcare?
1: I may have to uh, plead ignorance. I, you know, I, I'm sure he has some, you know, some writing on his website. I, I, it doesn't seem to come up that much, you know, in, in his, uh, in his events, the ones that, that I've attended. I mean, he's, he's running, you know, on the issues right now that are stirring a lot of voters, you know, uh, at least on, you know, the, the, the Republicans are trying to use to stir voters, uh, crime, inflation, um, you know, he's not for overturning the uh the, the ACA. Um he's uh you know I I I I'm I'm gonna plead ignorance. I, I have no idea hmm. what kind of health care uh, policy he would promote. I mean there are other <laughs> there are other doctors in the Senate who are Republicans. Um, Dr. Rand Paul, you know, is a <laughs> pretty prominent example. Um and and you know, I, I suspect Oz as a senator would would find other uh, things that are more interesting. Uh um, than, uh, than, than health care policy. I mean, this, the Republicans do a pretty um, – they're just not that as, – as we've seen from, you know, a decade's, uh, un, a decades worth of unsuccessful efforts to repeal the uh, uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. You know, the Republicans have never gotten their act together on that. And, and the reason is they, they just don't care that much about health care. Yeah. They're not quite sure, you know, repeal and replace. Okay. And then they can never come up with the replacement part. They they really don't have a, you know, other than, you know, some, uh, some, uh, you know, sort of some talking points. They they don't really have a, you know, a, a coherent uh, thought out
0: policy on what to do about getting more health care to people. Um, yeah, they're, they're just not interested in the policy part. Um, <laughs> I... Um, I really appreciate you uh, joining us to to share some of that perspective. And you know, this is a this is a man who, in my reading, uh, starts out his career believing that um, rigorous and evidence driven excellence matter, and then over the course of several decades, doesn't just give up on that, but actually starts to sell that um, for parts. And <laughs> I, I see his his Senate race as being. Exactly that. Like this is this is the the, the final thing you can sell off uh, to gain power uh, on the back of a a level of credibility um, that then tarnishes that credibility that set of institutions for everybody else who who actually has fealty to it, and that that to me is uh, I think the, the most devastating part. You know, I don't know obviously what's going to happen. Uh, in the election. But I do know that um, when you have someone like a Dr. Oz speaking on behalf of American health and health care, um, that we're all the worse for it. Um, and I, I, you know, I really just worry about what that means for the future and really appreciate your reporting, just looking into his career and and, and um, sharing what you've learned with us. Uh, Trip. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Giselle Fetterman was the first to notice that her husband's face was drooping, and she forced him to step away from the campaign to get the care he needed. He was diagnosed with a major stroke. He made it through the Democratic primary, only to face off against a TV doctor who's tried to make the stroke a major campaign issue. She joined me to talk about what her husband's stroke taught her about the challenges facing Pennsylvanians, and what it's like to have your husband criticized for getting sick by a TV doctor. Just a note, Giselle joined us from the campaign trail, so I hope you'll excuse the audio quality here. Here's my conversation with Giselle Fetterman. Um, Can you introduce yourself for the tech, please?
2: Hi, my name is Giselle Bajeta-Fetterman. I'm Pennsylvania's second lady.
0: I think one of the things that people have really appreciated about you and John is that you're you're pretty normal people. Um, And uh, you're up against the sort of craven, narcissistic need for power, which has, I think, too often encapsulated um, our our politicians. And you see it in its most disgusting and, and, I hate to say, honest form in in the form of, of Mehmed Az, who's clearly somebody who has no preparation for a political career, hasn't really thought about public policy in any real way, does not live a uh, the, the normal kind of life as evidenced by trying to shop for a crudité at a store whose name he doesn't even know. Um, and in some respects, that contrast is both really important for people to see, but also kind of hard to watch. Um, I, I want to ask you, right, like as someone who spent some time in in politics, um, not, you know, not entirely by your, your own set of choices, but because of the choices that you share as a family, what's it like trying to sustain sort of a normal without allowing the hideousness of it all to like, you know, to, to, to tell you never to be vulnerable again, what is, what has been the experience of that? And, and what's, what's kept you going?
2: I try to lean into that. I joke that I've been trying to normalize public crying for the last (laughs) decade, um, I think, you know, for me, it's important to to stay that way. I don't want to ever think this is okay. I don't want my kids to ever see me kind of just accept this as normal. Like I want to cry about it. I want to be upset about it because I don't want to ever be desensitized to this reality, right? I I know this might be our new normal in politics and I've seen the shift, um, but I don't want to ever be okay with it. So I want my kids to see me upset about it or crying about it. um, But I want to continue to show the reality that we should be vulnerable, um, but we should never accept this as okay. And you know, seeing the bias in the media as well and how ableist the media has been so openly um, is also really challenging. I think of everyone I love who is disabled or families who, who have a loved one. And to see the media be so openly ableist is is hard to watch as well.
0: I wanna um, just pick up on that on that point. Right. Because, um, you know, the the fact that John survived a stroke has been a subtext of the entire campaign. On the one hand, anybody who sort of had a stroke like his needs the time and space to recuperate. And on the other, you know, the pressure of having to prove that, you know, he still very clearly has all of his faculties has then, you know, forced him onto an accelerated timeline. You know, somebody who like fundamentally cares about the person underneath the candidate – how have you, uh, how have you tried to engage that situation? What has been your, um, advice?
2: I mean, he's a hero. He's amazing. And I can't imagine having to, you know, heal and go through that as he has, as so many families are, but he has had to do it completely in the public eye, which makes it that much more, more challenging. And he can get up in front of crowds of thousands, right? Right after having a stroke, which again, he's superhuman, um, and, and he's remarkable, but I do want to emphasize that our family is no different than all the families going through this. The, the only difference is we have the eyes of the world watching us go through that. So, you know, I support him. All his doctors support him. Uh, they all say he'll be better than before. He'll have a full recovery. And while this time period is, is challenging, um, I know that we'll get through it.
0: And what is the experience of this taught you about our healthcare system writ large?
2: Just how unfair it is. I mean, I always knew that I grew up as an undocumented child, so I had no child care for you know most of my childhood. And I remember, like, I couldn't play sports at school because I could not get injured. It took me 15 years to finally fix a broken nose. Um, but you know, John was 15 minutes from the top uh, stroke center in Pennsylvania. But the day before and the day after, we were slated to be in red parts of the state, parts that are much more lacking in um, not only like broadband, but, you know, hospital and access. And he had the great outcome that he is going to have thanks to where he was, our access to health care. But someone living in, in a more rural part of our state likely would have had a very different outcome.
0: So, so much of the politics of grievance that people like Mehmet Oz and, um, you know, his daddy, Donald Trump, uh, play in is driven by the fact that our systems really have not considered um, the, the level of disinvestment in so many communities that tend to lean red, right? The fact that every time a hospital shuts down, uh, you're talking not only about access to healthcare for thousands of people who now have to drive one more hour to get that, which should be enough, but you're also talking usually about the single biggest uh, employer in a community that is now also gone. Um, and the system of our healthcare has led to this, this phenomenon where large hospital systems come in by a, quote-unquote, underperforming uh, hospital in a rural community, realize they can't um, get it to, quote-unquote, perform, which basically means have uh, or make them enough money, and then they just shut it down. How much has um, that reality and the kind of disinvestment in, quote, red parts of our country— been a part of the the way that um you all hope to change american healthcare given your experience.
2: And we've actually lived through that experience and you know our area is blue but again it's it's um you know historically ignored our community mm. and we had a hospital that shut down. John was actually arrested protesting the closure of it. And mm. this is a hospital that saw over 20,000 emergency room visits a year but they closed oh. down because they could not make money and You know, you're a nonprofit. I don't know, you know, PSA, you're not supposed to be making money. That's not your goal here. Um, But they did. They closed down the hospital and now these folks have to take multiple buses or a, you know, ambulance they'll be paying for for the rest of their lives to get to a hospital now, you know, much further away. So we lived that firsthand. And um, so it is a lot of the red areas, but also the historically ignored areas like we lived in. Um, And we've had to drive folks to hospitals, right? We've done that multiple times. We get those calls now to drive Hmm. folks. Um, But again, it's it's this mentality that you you should be making a profit off people and not that healthcare is a right that everyone deserves equal access to.
0: You know and the, the scary thing is that should Mehmet Oz become a U.S. senator from a state he doesn't live in, um, it would mean that he would de facto become the face of Republican healthcare policy, and and this is somebody who has uh, repeatedly um, exploited his medical training to make unwarranted money off of unwarranted treatments uh, on television. This is somebody who in the midst of a pandemic, uh, having owned $615,000 of stock in the corporation that manufactures hydroxychloroquine, went on national TV and pumped it without any real evidence, while hundreds of thousands of people whose anxiety drove them to be searching for something (laughs) believed him. Um, what would it mean for American healthcare if Mehmed Oz became the de facto face of American health policy?
2: I think it's the, the beginning of the end. Um, you know, there's already such a, a strained relationship with healthcare, and I'm going for a tunnel, so I might get a little choppy. Um, if we look at how many millions of folks Americans did not get vaccinated because of you know what they were told or what they heard or what they believed in the pandemic, our pandemic would have. Ended much differently. We would be in a very different place. But this is also someone who was fined and had to settle a $5.25 million uh, settlement for selling products he knew were fake and would not help people. This is someone who has played on the vulnerability of people who just needed help or hope. And he exploited that. So I I think healthcare is already in a very difficult place in this country, but I think this is going to be the, really what takes us down if he were to be the face
0: on it. I want to ask you, you know, you were, um, you were the, the reason why, uh, why, um, John's stroke was discovered and, um, it was quick thinking. It was, uh, the ability to recognize a pattern, um, and then the ability to, to make sure your hard charging candidate of a husband listened to what you had to say and, and went to the hospital. Um, you know, you, you, you very likely saved his life. What is your, uh, advice to folks who are living with, with the risk of illness? W- what does it mean to, to be able to, to recognize something like this, uh, and, and have hard conversations with your loved one, um, about how to protect themselves and get health uh, particularly when that loved one is a, you know, is a stubborn husband as happens, uh, often. <laughs> well,
2: uh, his life and, and hopefully democracy as well. Um, you know, it you know the reality is it's like 70 percent of men i read the statistic that just don't go you know whether they fear what they're going to find out or they just prioritize in john's case john prioritized the world above himself which wonderful that's noble but that isn't enough right you have to be your best to be your best for other people and it's a lesson he's had to learn the hard way um but Since then, we've received messages from all over of folks who now are taking a more active role in their health because they've been inspired by his transparency. And I think the one that stands out to me the most was actually someone from the VA. A VA employee reached out and said that a veteran came in in active stroke and his wife said the only reason he agreed to come in is because he had seen what happened with John Federer. So I know that his honesty and his courage has absolutely saved lives. But I think we should all take this as a, a learning opportunity um, that you have to take care of yourself, too. I always tell my kids, it's great to be kind to everyone else. and You should be, but that has to include yourself. And this applies to how we take care of each other and how we take care of ourselves as well.
0: I, I really appreciate that, um, that message. And, you know, uh, the, 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 the challenge so often right, when it comes to public health is it's all the things that we do before someone gets sick. Um, that, you know, it's not just, uh, what we do for ourselves, but it's also what society does for us. And we've sort of disinvested in that. And the the long-term consequences that as those health challenges pile up, it gets harder and harder to look at. It's kind of like, um, you know, if you make a pile of dirty clothes in your room, at some point the, the pile gets so big that you're just like, no, I'm just, I'm just not going to be, I don't even want to, I don't even know what's under the bottom of that. I'm not going to um, make
2: eye contact with that pile. I, <laughs> I've had those moments.
0: <laughs> uh, and, you know, when it's your health, right, that, that, can, that can end um, in, in some pretty dire consequences. But it's also the fact that, like, too few people have access to the means of good health in the first place. You know, a walkable community, um, healthy foods uh, in, in their local community, as we've talked about already, clean air or clean water. Um, and I, I want to ask, you know, what this experience has taught you about the things that we need to be building out in society to protect people from ever finding themselves in that circumstance in the first place.
2: I don't know. I I don't know that I learned it now. I think I grew up learning it because Mm. of my, my lack of access to healthcare growing up. I, you know, I could see like a a minor thing that I could have addressed much earlier on, then it just kind of snowballs. Like you mentioned, saves money if we work on preventive things other than addressing it when we're already at the end. But I think it's changing the relationship that we have and, um, with medicine, right? Why is it that so many folks are scared to get vaccinated, right? And it's because you have someone like a Mehmet Oz telling folks to take this, and that is my biggest fear: is that that becomes the mouthpiece um, and changes healthcare in a way that we can't go back, right? I think right now we're at a place where we can we can change the conversations and we can change the relationship, but you know, where do we go if we get too far gone?
0: Recently, you um, you called uh, Dr. Oz a quack, which uh, we wholly validate here on this show. Um, but I-, I wanted to ask you, right, because sometimes when we talk about quackery, it's kind of one of those, uh, those crimes that's perceived as having no victim. Um, like, you know, a quack can come and they can offer you some snake oil, but it's your choice as to whether or not you take it. But what that tends to ignore is the vulnerability of people who um, tend to fall prey to this kind of uh this kind of crime, we'll call it. And um I, I want to ask you uh w- w- as someone who who's who's lived part of your life without um, health care, uh who didn't always have the 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 means and opportunity of getting um, great care uh, in your life, what What does quackery mean to you? Who are the victims of that and what makes them so susceptible um, and so vulnerable uh, to these kinds of lies?
2: There are so many victims. Um, And I think what makes them susceptible is that they're looking for hope, right? They're looking for, I don't want to say a shortcut necessarily, but they're, they're looking for hope and they're watching these, these things and they're listening and they believed him because he had a doctor before his name. And, you know, if you watch the the back episodes, I was never a watcher of the show, but, you know, I've seen enough during this this cycle. Um, How did anyone take this seriously? How was this allowed to continue on television for as long as it has? You had overseen by a board who were not medical professionals. And what else is out there right now that is going to come back and bite us just like this did? You know, how are we allowing this to continue to air? It's like, Folks, I think, who watch Newsmax or Fox, like what makes you more susceptible to that? It's almost like a brainwashing of of half our country. And it's terrifying to me. Some of the comments I read are things that are so nonsensical, but these folks believe it with all their might, all their heart. And I think it's folks who are searching for hope and you catch them at a vulnerable period and they just believe anything.
0: I appreciate that point, right, because that's the that's the piece about it is that um, quackery exists where our system has failed, right? It exists where people don't get hope or reassurance from the systems that currently exist or the system to which they have access, which too f- few people have access to the full suite of, of the healthcare system. And so – they have to search for alternatives because very few people are going to give up on the the most important thing we have going uh, on this world, which is our our very lives and our health. Um, And so in order for quackery to work, there has to be systems failure at some point. And, and, And this is kind of the point I worry about what happens when a lifelong quack gets access to the system, right? Because their first instinct is going to be to disallocate the system that then allows quacks to exploit it. And um, that's a real worry. And we see that happening across our system. I mean, the fact that, for example, Medicare doesn't fund vision, dental, and hearing, despite the fact that almost everybody I know who's 65 needs one of Eat, those services.
2: Uh, yeah.
0: Exactly. Says a lot about the way that um, corporations have lobbied to make sure that Medicare doesn't offer everything that it it, it should um, so that uh, companies can then come off and profit off of addressing the margin. Um The other uh, really important issue um, that has uh, has emerged in our society since June um, has been the right to one's own bodily autonomy in the form of reproductive rights. And um, you've been a leader on this issue, and you you spent part of your childhood in a country where abortion is is fundamentally illegal, and seeing the consequences, the healthcare consequences for people um, because of that. We've got someone who, again. it claims to to be a physician but is um actively advocating against uh the right to bodily autonomy the, the 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 ability for someone to make a decision about their own pregnancy uh with their doctor and no one else um and wants to leverage the system to take away uh that healthcare right um in, in your own work in your own life um, how has reproductive rights um, shaped people's uh, lives and, and, and livelihoods. And um, what does that tell you uh, about the stakes of this election when it comes to abortion rights in this country?
2: It tells me that it can absolutely enrich your lives, but it has to be your choice to allow it to. This is someone who is not only actively working against it, but he actually believes that it's murder. He's on tape <laughs> saying that you're a murderer if you just have an abortion for any reason, right? He's also on record saying that he wouldn't treat smokers. What doctor says, I will not care for smokers, right? This is dangerous. Like these are very dangerous conversations we're having. And as someone who grew up in a country where abortion was illegal, to think that my daughter might have fewer rights than I've had my entire adult life was never a, a thought that I would have believed. If you told me that, I would have said, of course not, that isn't gonna happen. But it, I don't think that's, this is the end. This is the beginning, right? What's next? After this, what are they going for next? And that's what we'll continue to see. They're going to continue to push for more and more extreme and radical, um, changes that are so damaging to women, but to people as a whole. I,
0: I, you know, I would have thought that someone who, uh, went to medical school and explored all the nuances of this, um, would understand that. But, you know, again, this is about power and about control and it's easy, um, to give a set of talking points that you you should know better about when uh, your goal is is simply power um, and ego. One of the things that strikes me about about um, you and your family is that you're you're really quite hopeful people. You can't do what you do without being hopeful. And you know, as as we sort of think about moving forward, this is a, a, a really challenging and in, in, in dark time um, in America. Uh, what what gives you hope uh, about the future? And, you know, when you uh, put your kids to sleep, um, what do you tell them that steals them for the next day?
2: I think the next generation is definitely going to be better than the sun. And that gives me hope. You know, it gives me hope when they're outraged because the said something awful. It gives me hope when they, you know, the things they see, they're so bothered by it. They're not, it's not normal to them. They're really angry and really upset. And they have more compassion and empathy than, I think, so many of our leaders. And that has to give me hope. Um, I also cry a ton. So it's not all hopeful days. Uh, many days are, are really hard. Um, but we have to believe that it's going to get better. You have to believe that um, all this has been for something, all this sacrifice and all that our family has been through and so many others who choose to run for office with good intentions, um, that it's... For for an
0: outcome that will make lives better. Well, we really, really appreciate you joining us uh, from the road, where uh, we know you're you know you're you're, you're putting um, your time and your energy uh, where where your hope and optimism are. Um, this is not easy work, uh, and I'm grateful that you're doing it, particularly in the context um, of uh, of this particular moment in our democracy. So, um, thank you again, Giselle, for for joining us for your insight and your perspective. Um, and, and wishing you all the luck on the campaign trail, okay? Thank
2: you for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for your voice and your
0: platform. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. BA 4.6, BQ1, BQ 1.1, 1, BQ 1. 1, BF BF7, those are just four of the new Omicron subvariants that account for at least 5% of the U.S. COVID-19 burden over the past two weeks. Though BA.5 remains the dominant subvariant for now, it's likely that these will compete to enrich themselves over the coming weeks as COVID cases may continue to grow. And those are just the new variants in the U.S. There are several others, including XXB, which are emerging around the globe. Taken together, they tell us a lot about where viral evolution is headed. Almost all of them have key mutations in the same spot on the virus's spike protein, the so-called receptor binding domain. That's the spot where our antibodies, the most important line of immune defense, bind to the virus, and block its action. But those mutations, well, they make it so that those antibodies just can't bind as well. And that helps the virus evade our immune systems. These aren't big changes, though. Each of these variants is slightly different from the original Omicron, making slight tweaks to optimize, to find the nooks and crannies in our immunity in ways that allow them to reinfect folks. The fact that they exist and are enriching themselves, increasing in proportion of COVID cases overall, is worrisome for their ability to cause another fall wave. There are a couple of pieces of good news here, though. First, given that these are still Omicron subvariants, it suggests to us that the virus is not making leaps in immune evasiveness, which means our vaccine armament is still effective and vaccination is still the critical piece of protection against serious illness from them. Second, Paxlovid, our COVID-19 oral treatment, is still effective against them. But remember, we're still kind of flying blind here. Over the course of the last year since the original Omicron surge, We've seen a vast decommissioning of our COVID infrastructure, including testing. So I worry that we're likely missing the real burden of COVID cases around the country because we're just not equipped to find it. Last week, a new study showed that 1.3 million Americans with diabetes rationed their insulin last year. That's 16.5% of all people with diabetes who use it. For folks with diabetes, insulin is like water. You don't get it, and you can die. And then there's the fact that insulin is over a century old. Its discoverer sold the patent for a buck, one dollar, because, quote, insulin is for the world. Notice he didn't say insulin is for the pharmaceutical companies so that they can exploit it to raise their profits. No, he said for the world. And across the world, that's mainly the case, just not in America, where we've allowed massive pharma corporations to keep jacking the price up every single year to pad their bottom lines. While the Inflation Reduction Act will certainly ease insulin costs for Medicare beneficiaries, people over 65, Hundreds of thousands of people will continue to struggle to afford it. One thing we could do is extend Medicare to everybody. Just a thought. Chances are you're listening to this on a pair of headphones. In fact, no generation has had better access to in-ear audio than ours, which is a real problem. And that's because few of us pay attention to that warning on our phones that tell us that we're listening too much or too loudly. We crank our volume up to 11 when our favorite banger comes on, and that's the problem. I worry that we're going to pay for it in higher rates of hearing loss down the line. And hearing aids? Those things ain't cheap. Well, at least they weren't.
2: Soon, Americans with mild to moderate hearing loss will be able to buy their hearing aids at the local drugstore or pharmacy. No prescription needed.
0: That's Vice President Kamala Harris announcing a new FDA rule on hearing aids that's gone into effect. It allows them to be sold over-the-counter for the first time, rather than behind a prescription or custom-fitting. That meant that the average pair of hearing aids in 2020 was $4,000. It also meant that there were fewer products to choose from. Lots of companies just didn't bother to jump in because the number of people who could afford to pay out of pocket was so limited. Under the new rule, many more manufacturers are coming to the market, giving seniors far better options. This is great, but you know what would be even better? If hearing aids were covered by Medicare, because, you know, like a third of people who are Medicare eligible need them. That's it for today. On your way out, don't forget to rate and review. It really does go a long way. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you'll drop by the Crooked store for some America Dissected merch. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Our associate producers are Tara Terpstra and Emma Illich Frank. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Ari Schwartz, Ines Mata, and Leo Duran. Our theme song is by Takei Asuzawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me. Dr. Abdul Al sayed your host. Thanks for listening. This show is for general information and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended to provide specific healthcare or medical advice and should not be construed as providing healthcare or medical advice. Please consult your physician with any questions related to your own health.